Well, it is a joy to continue our walk through the Bible, this sermon series, as we walk book by book, one message on each book of the Bible. We've now been in the Old Testament for some time, and we still have uh, uh, some time to go before we get to the New Testament. I think the plan, well, I do have a plan, but it's all Lord willing, we'll get to the New Testament around the turn of the new year. So we're still going to be in the New Testament, or the Old Testament for a while. But I thought before we dive into Chronicles today, to just um, remind us why we read the Old Testament. You know, so why, why do we read the Old Testament? Isn't the New Testament better? Shouldn't we just focus on what the New Testament has to say? I mean, after all, that's where the gospel is, right? That's where we learn about Jesus. Why would we spend time reading the Old Testament? And it's a sad fact that many churches today and more and more churches are abandoning preaching the Old Testament. Even some very famous and once evangelical preachers are basically deriding the Old Testament and calling us to focus on the new. So why do we spend time reading the Old Testament? Why do we sing the Psalms? I mean, aren't there more contemporary stuff with better grooves and and stuff that we could sing? Why sing the Psalms? Why read the Old Testament? Isn't that for somebody else? To put, put it as my Old Testament professor once said, you know, jokingly, isn't that somebody else's mail? You know, you go to the mailbox and you know, we rent a house. We constantly are getting mail from the last person who apparently never forwarded their their mail. Isn't, isn't the Old Testament like for the people of Israel and they're kind of gone? Maybe they'll come back. Maybe there's something going on still in the Middle East. Why? Why do we read this stuff? I want to just draw your attention to answer that question to 1 Corinthians 10. Um, you can turn there if, you, if you'd like just for a moment. 1 Corinthians 10 is a key passage that tells us why we need to study the Old Testament. You know, Corinth is dealing with idolatry. They are they're having a major issue with idolatry. So what does Paul do? He takes them back to the Old Testament. He takes them back there. For example, uh, in verse 1, he says, I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized. By the way, he's speaking to Jews and Gentiles here, Jews and Gentiles in the church of Corinth. And he says, our fathers, not, not the Jews' fathers or you Jewish people in the church, your fathers. He says, our fathers... We're all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all ate, all drank the same spiritual drink for they drank from the spiritual rock that fo- followed them and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, most, with most of them, God was not pleased for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now listen to this, what Paul says to this Jew Gentile church. Now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. And then look down in verse 11. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. We see there in verse 6 and verse 11, a key reality for us that the history in the Old Testament is not somebody else's history. It is our history it becomes our history in Christ. 
uh, as we turn to Chronicles today, it's a very nationalistic book. It's a book that uh, is designed to unite all of Israel back together for God's purposes. It's, it's to revive the nationalistic themes and impulses of a nation to go back, uh, to return, to repent, and go back to its original purpose. And what we need to understand is more important than our uh, your, uh, Norwegian heritage or American heritage or Sri Lankan heritage, you know, where whatever heritage you come from here, more important than that history, and I love reading history and, and all of that, but is the history of the people of God. And it's not just nice things to know. It's actually written down for our instruction. That's why we read and learn from the Old Testament, because it's actually our history to teach us and to instruct us by living examples how we ought to live or how we ought not to live. And many of the lessons are by negative example. And that's why we sing the Psalms as well. And all of these things point us to Christ. All of these things point us to Christ. So 1 Corinthians 10, 6, and 11, those are two reasons why, or I should say two good proof texts to point you of why we need to read and study the Old Testament because they are written for our example. They're our lesson book on how to live and how not to live, and they all point us to Christ who was there even in the Old Testament. There are great acts of faith and great acts of unbelief or of unfaithfulness in the Old Testament as we also read in the New. And Christ is there. And so we need to learn from him, see him in these texts, and uh, apply these lessons to our lives. So with that, let's turn to Chronicles uh, together. Uh, Go ahead and uh, turn to page 7 of your worship folder where I have an overview of the book today. And we'll look at this quickly uh, together. Uh, The melodic line uh, and the summary here says that, as I've put it, Chronicles gives hope to the exiles expelled from the promised land due to their sin. God is still with them and he has work for them to do. Chronicles calls God's people all Israel, as it's said in the the book many times, to reunite for their appointed task, return to God's city, rebuild his temple, and restore the Lord's worship. Worship is a central focus of the book, emphasizing David and Solomon's roles in building the temple in Jerusalem and uniting all Israel together in worship. It is in this work that God's people will find healing. That healing will only come through repentance and faith. The Lord's message to Solomon becomes a clarion call for the reader. If my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. In every age, healing comes through the humility of repentance and faith. Today, united by Christ, Christians share this temple-building legacy, and every member is needed for the work. So we'll expound that this morning. Uh, Chronicles is broken into four parts, and again, like many of these big Old Testament books, first, 
and Second Chronicles are one book. So I will refer to them collectively as the book or as Chronicles today. And it's divided into four parts that all emphasize all Israel's role in worship. I'm going to use the four headings. If you look at the brief literary outline, I'm going to use these four headings as our sermon headings today. So we'll look at this in four parts. So first, the Lord elects Israel to his service in the world even now. The book of Chronicles has uh, been probably one of the most neglected books in the Old Testament. Uh, And I'm not making this claim for myself. This is what many commentators say. But Chronicles appears like just a rehash of First and Second Kings. But it actually has a very different message than First and Second Kings. First and Second Kings was reason to answer the question, has God failed? Has God failed? And as we saw last week, Kings uh, shows God has not failed. Everything is according to his plan. And the reason Israel is exiled is because of their constant and perpetual rebellion. God has not failed. Indeed, God is just as in control as he ever was. He's simply judging his people for their rebellious and hard hearts. But we come to Chronicles, and Chronicles rehashes this material for a different purpose. Chronicles is answering the question, is God still with us? So if God has kicked us out of the land, does that mean that it's it for us? Is God still with us after this? And the writer of Chronicles gives a a resounding yes. He is still with us today. Israel still has work to do in the world even now. And so in the first part of this book, of all things we get, Uh, nine chapters of genealogy. Nine chapters of genealogy. I think most of us, we get to this uh, section of the Old Testament that's genealogy. I see you all smiling and looking at each other, so you know what I'm talking about. We just kind of eyes maybe roll in the back of our heads or we just zip through it really. We're like, who are these? I don't even know how to pronounce these names, let alone who these people are. But they're actually critical. And a lot of times, genealogies, they're not simply there like for us when you go to Ancestry.com to find all your answers, you know, person by person by person. That the, the writers of the Old Testament books use genealogies to make theological statements. And the writer of Chronicles is making a big theological statement here. He wants to show that The Lord elects Israel to his service in the world even now. Even now, God has not forsaken them. And the way that the the writer of Chronicles does this is he goes back to the beginning. He goes all the way back to Abraham. I mean, excuse me, to Adam in the genealogy of Abraham. He shows how God's covenant promise to Abraham that he would be his people links all the way back to his original creation purposes in Adam. And so we go from Adam to Abraham in this first genealogy. And then after that, the genealogy continues through Abraham uh, and to his sons Isaac and then to Jacob and Esau. 
explaining both Jacob as the one who will continue the covenant promise, as well as Esau, who becomes the rebellious uh, son, who his, he ends up becoming the nation of Edom, which is one of the, ma- uh, one of the, uh, the most, uh, I mean, annoying is not the right word, but uh, one of the most perpetual thorns in the side of Israel uh, is Edom. Uh, which comes from Esau and Seir. Sometimes it's called Seir. And so we have that. So we have this continual lineage from Adam to Abraham to his son Jacob. And then we get in chapter 2 to 9, the major section of this genealogy, which deals with Israel. And this genealogy is not broken according to birth order. In fact, some of the tribes aren't even mentioned. But the way that it is broken up is it's broken into a chiasm. You've heard me use that word before, like this envelope structure. And it begins with Judah, because from Judah is, the, the, is where the king comes. And it's going to end with Benjamin, which is where Saul came from, the first king. And in the middle are the Levites. Okay, so we have this genealogy. So we have the focus on the king who will lead his people, top and tail of this chiasm. And in the middle, we have the Levites, who have been authorized by God to lead Israel in the worship of God's people. And worship is going to be the central image and focus of Chronicles as a whole. So we have the king, we have the priests, and then back to the king. And in between these two sections, we have the Transjordian tribes, the tribes that lived on the east side of Jordan. And we have, on the other side of the Levites, we have the the northern tribes there. Okay? And these are the tribes that actually split off from from the southern kingdom and from David in the days of, uh, after Solomon, when Solomon's son Rehoboam leads and and the Lord tears the kingdom from Rehoboam. So the northern ten tribes are there. But what the the chronicler is doing is showing that all Israel is still together. They're still one people, even though they're divided for the moment. But the way that they are united is through the king and the priest. Through the king and the priest. So it's this, it's this beautiful chiasm that we see uh, in, uh, from chapters 2 to 9. And so when you come to it, the next time you come to a genealogy in the Old Testament or the New Testament, because there's one in Matthew, for example, and one in Luke, ask yourself, why is the author placing this here and what is he doing with it? Okay, that will, that will help you to more actively engage and understand What's going on with these genealogies? But the, the chronicler doesn't stop there. After making the statement about all Israel being united by the king and the priest, he goes back and connects it to, for his time, to today. He brings it to today for these exiles in the Persian Empire. And we have a genealogy of the Jan resettlement of the people that were sent back. And he shows how they are connected to these promises too that go all the way back to Abraham and to Adam. God is still with them and it's important still to know their history. 
There may be other uses that the chronicler had in mind, for example, showing legitimacy for if you're a priest or a Levite um, or things like that. But the, the major emphasis here is on all Israel. After we get that, then Saul's genealogy is repeated, which sets up the next section. But this whole part is really to focus on uh, all Israel and how they're united in the king and the priests, and that even now they have work to do as they go back to Judea to resettle it. A lot of this genealogy um, be- makes more sense after you've read the whole book of Chronicles as well to see how it ends. And I'll, I want to point one thing out here, and then I want to connect it to today. If you look at the bottom of the outline that I've given to you, um, the, en- the end of Chronicles um, is we read of Cyrus's proclamation, whoever is among his people, let him go up. So Chronicles begins with this theological statement that Israel still has service to do in the world even now, and it ends with this call to go up. So it's going to be a charge for God's people to follow God in the service and the work that they've been called to do. When I read this section, it reminds me of Ephesians chapter 2. Remember uh, Ephesians chapter, can someone tell me what Ephesians chapter 2 is about? For by grace you have been saved through, and this is not, it is, it is the work of God. So God has saved you by grace. It's not your work. It's his work. And just as he called his people in the Old Testament by grace to do his work in his bidding, so he does for us too. I love that Paul does not leave us hanging with, well, you've been saved by grace through faith. Do you remember what he goes What he goes on to say in verse 10, he says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So God didn't elect Israel to just say, hey, we're a special people and and feel good about themselves. He elected them for a purpose. They were chosen for a purpose. And the same is true for us. We are chosen for a purpose. So we're going to explore what that purpose is. But Paul tells us, and this theme comes so clearly through Paul as it connects to Chronicles, that God, we were created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared, God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We're going to come back to Ephesians a few times uh, today because it connects in many ways to the message of Chronicles. So we'll pass through now this first section of these genealogies and say, what is this service in the world that Israel was called to do? What was Israel chosen to do? And we're going to see here now in the second section that has everything to do with worship. The Lord establishes Israel as a united kingdom to worship him. The Lord unites 
Well, I put it a little differently in your worship folder than I have my notes. The Lord unites his kingdom people for worship. I couldn't fit that whole line in. But the Lord establishes Israel as a united kingdom to worship him. In this section of Chronicles, the chronicler starts with the death of Saul. So it doesn't start off very hopeful. It starts with death. Okay, why do we need to be reminded of this? Why do we start with Saul's death? The chronicler begins with the anti-example of what Israel's supposed to do. Remember Saul, Saul the first king, he's the guy that's head and shoulder uh, uh, a head taller than everyone else. He looks right, you know, if we were to pick out a king from the crowd, he'd say he's the man, right? He's the man the world would want. Well, Saul breaches faith with God when he kept for himself things that were to be devoted to the Lord for destruction. And we read about this in 1 Samuel 15 um, as one place. You can uh, read about it elsewhere as well. It's uh, mentioned in the Kings as well. But Saul was greedy. And Saul kept for himself things that were for God. And the Lord rejected him as king for it and told him that your sin is as the sin of divination. Saul was trying to worship God his way. He, he told the Lord, hey, well, I thought I'd keep this stuff for you, for your people, and not burn it as you called me to do. Saul thought he could do worship, his, worship Yahweh his own way. And it not only cost him the kingdom, but it also cost him his very life and the life of his the life of his sons. Turn to First Chronicles chapter 10. I want to point this out to you. First Chronicles 10 verses 13 and 14. We read after his death, so Saul died for his breach of faith. Saul died for his breach of faith. He broke faith with the Lord, in that he did not com- keep the command of the Lord, and also consulted a medium seeking guidance. He did not seek guidance from the Lord. Therefore, the Lord put him to death and turned the kingdom over to David, the son of Jesse. The number one reason Israel is kicked out of the land is because they broke faith with God. And they worshipped the gods of the nations that surrounded them. They perverted the worship of Yahweh and then rejected it altogether, worshipping other gods. And Saul becomes the poster boy for that, along with Jeroboam, who will come a little bit later. By the way, when you read the Chronicles, the chronicler is assuming you already know the, the book of Kings. Because he will refre- he will mention to a lot of times. So when he talks about, for example, Saul going to the medium and seeking guidance, he's presupposing you already know what's going on in Kings. So Kings can be a resource for you as you study the theology of Chronicles. So the Lord is the one who is central in this book. The Lord puts Saul to death for his breach of faith. And then he turns the kingdom, we read in that same section, over to David. The telling of David in 
this uh, book is much different than in Samuel. Uh, Samuel is shown to ha- shows David to have many faults along the way. The most uh, importantly, we think of David and Bathsheba, right? He's known to have many faults. The chronicler doesn't mention any of those. Same with Solomon. We are told that Solomon lost the kingdom because of his 1,000 women, his 700 wives and 300 concubines who were foreigners who turned his heart away from the Lord. The chronicler doesn't mention any of that. Not because he's trying to deny that it didn't happen, but he is focusing on the priority of the right king leading God's people and the right priests leading God's people in worship. So the main focus of both David and Solomon is on the temple. It's on worship. So that's the thing that the writer here is wants us to focus on is the role of the king in worship. David makes preparations for the temple. And then it will be Solomon who makes the temple and uh, builds it. Uh, finally, and that takes us now to Second Chronicles uh, as well. And we read that it was the Lord who makes Solomon exceedingly great. That's how actually Second Chronicles begins, how the Lord made him exceedingly great. And Solomon builds the temple. It's this glorious thing. They have this glorious dedication. And then the central uh, moment or the pivotal moment comes when the Lord appears to Solomon at night. And we read that already in 2 Samuel 7 in our, sur- in our uh, scripture reading this morning. But the Lord tells Solomon, and this becomes a call for God's people who are reading this now, if my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face, and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and forgive their sin and heal their land. Imagine what it would have been like as one of the original readers of this book to hear this. You know, Think about it. Your ancestors were enslaved and taken off into Babylon. During that period of time, you or your ancestors, depending on exactly when this was reading, imagine yourselves, again, in their, I should say, in their sandals, uh, probably. Imagine what they're thinking. You or your ancestors just watched a coup d'etat. They watched a, a revolution. They watched Babylon get destroyed. So you're under Babylon. The nation you're under gets destroyed. The Persian Empire comes in and takes over, right? So just think about what you would be watching on the news, right? If this was happening to your day. And you're the people of God just being blown and tossed by these massive sweeps of history. And in the process of that, in recent days, the king of Persia, the pagan king of Persia says that Yahweh has called me to build a house for him in Jerusalem, let any who are uh, of his people go back and build. Just imagine that. And then you start reflecting on why you were in exile in the first place, and you're reading these words 
which we only have here in Chronicles. We don't have these words in Samuel or Kings, if my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. All they want, I mean, what they want more than anything is just a country that is theirs, that is healed and restored. It's healed and restored. And the way that that happens is through humility and turning back to the Lord. That is this huge message in Chronicles. Throughout the, throughout the book, as we come now to the third section, or just on the cusp of it, let me put it that way, we have this juxtaposition or this comparing and contrasting of faith and of breaches of faith. Of faith and breaches of faith as we look at the kings that follow. So Solomon committed a gross breach of faith through his numerous and uh, preponderant idolatry. So he had these 1,000 foreign wives that led his heart astray. And he ended up building on all the high places uh, gods for, uh, of all the nations for the women that he married, even, uh, even Molech. Uh, and I've mentioned that before, but Molech is the god where they would sacrifice infants to bring prosperity in the land and they would roll down the arms of this, this idol and fall into the burning Hit, uh, the stomach of this this idol. So Solomon even built that. And because of this, this gross sin, the kingdom was torn. And we are told both in the Chronicles and in Kings that it's the Lord that t- tore the kingdom from Solomon. So let's look at this third section. The Lord divides the kingdom due to unfaithfulness. In Second Chronicles ten fifteen we read So the king did not listen to the people, this is of Solomon's son Rehoboam, for it was a turn of affairs brought about by God that the Lord might fulfill his word which he spoke to Ahijah the Shilonite, to Jeroboam the son of Nabot. And if you recall last week, when the kingdom is divided, we have Rehoboam for the southern kingdom, Solomon's son, and then Jeroboam, son of Nebat, who takes the northern tribes with him and then builds a golden calf in Dan and in Bethel and institutes false and foreign worship in their midst. And it becomes the number one reason why uh, Israel and Judah are exiled from the land again. But we don't get any of the history of the of the northern kings and chronicles. They only focus on the continuity of the of the kings of David and Solomon that come. So this third section only looks at the kings of the southern kingdom, where in first kings you go back and forth between them. This all end, uh, ends in a catastrophe. Uh, from the human perspective, but from God's perspective, this ends in triumph because God's people are expelled from the land. And we are told in 
chapter 36, 21, that the land, that is the promised land, enjoyed its Sabbaths for 70 years. So the land enjoyed its Sabbaths for 70 years, which was according to the prophet Jeremiah. So Israel and Judah had, by and large, for the most part, almost the entire time, worshipped the Lord incorrectly or neglected his worship altogether. And so the Lord said, that's enough. It'd be like the Lord wiping out our church. Let's, let's say the church is the people, not the building. But let's say we had a building and a property and the Lord just wiped it out for 70 years because we stopped worshiping God his way and just said, now my building will have rest for 70 years. And that's what God did with the land. They were breaking the Sabbath time and time again. So God says, that's enough. You know, you're out of here. And he takes them off. The land has rest. But that's not it for God's people. And we come to the last section. And Chronicles ends with this wonderful note of hope. The Lord sends his exiles back to Jerusalem to restore his worship. Look at the end of Chronicles there in chapter 36. We end with this proclamation of Cyrus. And again, just to, I know if you don't study this a lot, it can be confusing. We're reading all about these different empires. So just before I read this, remember, it was the Assyrian Empire that wiped out the northern kingdom in 722 B.C. Okay. And then the Lord wiped out the southern kingdom in 586 B.C. through the Babylonians. So we've had the Assyrians, the Babylonians. But then after that, while God's people are in exile, the Persians come in and wipe out the Babylonians. So it's, it's, it's like playing king of the hill. Assyria gets taken down by Babylon. Babylon gets taken down by Persia. And now in this time, after, these, uh, after this period where the land is having its rest, we read, Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may the Lord his God be with him. Let him go up. So the book ends with a mission. Let him go up. So this has been a very brief overview. I want to connect it now to the New Testament. But one thing I would encourage you to do as you're reading through this for yourselves, note the centrality of worship. What's the, what's the first thing they're called to do when they return? It's to build the house of God. Rebuild the house of God. And we'll see this in Ezra and Nehemiah as well. The first thing wasn't shore up the walls and secure your kingdom. It's no restore worship. Restore worship. And we have this missional theme, let him go. It, uh, it points us right to our own Lord's command. 
when Jesus says, all authority in heaven on earth has been given to me. So he's the king of kings. Cyrus has been made a king temporarily and the Lord gave him a commission. But God the Father gave the Lord Jesus an even greater commission. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to him. What does he say? Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have taught and commanded. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. We have a greater call to go than the call that the exiles had from the king of Persia. Though at the same time, it is actually the very same call in an earlier part of progressive redemptive history. Okay, Their part of going was an earlier part of our part of going, right? Because they're going back to the land, and this is where the Christ shall be born, who will build the true temple in his own body. So when we read Chronicles and read this call to go, it's also a call for us to fulfill our work to make disciples of all nations. And what a wonderful way we get to do this as a church where we literally have people from many nations together. And our call to build the temple is not to build a building, but it is to build up the body of Christ. In the New Testament, the temple is shown to not be a building in Israel, but the church, which is made up of God's Jew and Gentile people. I told you we'd go back to Ephesians. You feel free to turn back to Ephesians too. And we've, we've looked at this several times in, uh, in this passage, it's several times in this series. But in Ephesians 2, we are reminded that the church is the household of God, his dwelling place. Uh, I want to just point you to one, uh, one text here. We've already talked about that God has work for us to do, right? Remember, we've been saved by grace through faith uh, for works uh, that God has prepared beforehand. By the way, sometimes people ask, uh, good works don't save us, but we were saved by grace for good works. God saved us of his own free mercy so that we might serve him in this world. What are some of those works that we're called to do? Paul goes on in Ephesians to show how Gentiles have been made part of the people of God, fellow citizens. I'm just skimming chapter 2. And at the end, we read in in verse 21, "In, in whom the whole structure that is in Christ, we grow into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So God is building us as a tr- the true spiritual temple. Because what is the temple? It's the place where the Spirit dwells. And we are that temple individually and corporately. Then Paul goes on in Ephesians in chapter 4. And I just want to point out in chapter 4 about God's given different gifts to different people for the building up of the body towards maturity in Christ. We read in and verse four, chapter 4, verse 13, until we all attain the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Uh, so that we, uh, I'll just keep reading, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and, 
and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. And how does, the, how does this temple get built up in love? It's by speaking the truth to one another. And it's when every part does its work. Every part does its work. So it's not just like, you know, I need to do my part so that the whole gets built up. Or you need to just do your part. We are all called by God to build the, the house. I want to get back to something we read and we didn't read, but I just briefly mentioned in Chronicles. The phrase all Israel is mentioned 47 times. All Israel, 47 times. And this is mentioned in the post-exilic period where the northern ten tribes seem lost forever, scattered among the nations. And we have some remnant in, uh, in Persia. Some are going back. But the call of the chronicler is for all Israel to participate in restoring the worship. And it's the same in the New Testament of the church. Every one of us has been given a spiritual gift. Paul tells us that in his letter to the Corinthians. We read about that in in Romans 12 as well, for example. We're each given a gift to build up the body. So in our call to go and make disciples of all nations, which we get to do here as this church, every one of us is needed to build up the whole with using our spiritual gifts. and Maybe it would be great sometime to do a teaching on spiritual gifts, but just, just in a nutshell, to just uh, summarize that, what are the things God naturally has gifted you to do? God redeems those things when he saves you so that you can use those to build up and encourage the body. Some of you love hospitality. You know, invite people over. Invite people you don't know from the church over yet. Or invite lost neighbors over that they can you can develop redemptive relationships with with them. Uh, some of you have gifts of mercy. You love just showing mercy and care and compassion to others. Find out what the needs are and see what you can do. There's also gifts of of generosity and administration and all sorts of other gifts. You can read the list in in First Corinthians and in Romans. And those gifts by the, or lists are not meant to be exhausted, by the way, but Ask yourself, this is my challenge, when you go home today and you take some time to reflect on God's word, how has God called you to serve the church? You know, in these early days of our mission, we need people that can help set up and people that can help tear down. I could really use somebody that could help like manage the website and advertising. Um, we could use help with tech team because right now I've got my laptop here just kind of doing what I can to live stream. But we could, we could use help in all sorts of ways. We're going to need help like caring for kids um, as we do a, a, as we plan to do an educational hour starting in the fall. You know, we're going to need help there. Think about how God has called you to serve. And I would love to hear from you um, what uh, what those things are and start a conversation or you can tell Peter or uh, or any of us but let, let me know uh, how you can help in this building project okay. lastly I just want to uh, conclude with uh, one final note of encouragement to you 
It's when we do this stuff together that healing comes. And I think we all could feel, whether for our church or for uh, yourself or for your family, we could use times of refreshing and times of, of healing. Remember that clarion call, if my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. What does that actually look like, seeking the face of God and turning from wickedness? I would argue that for the, the exiles, seeking God's face is for one thing, returning to their original purpose and being a people called to worship and to forsake idols, return to the word of the Lord and worship him rightly. That certainly is included in turning from their wicked ways. I think that it is also, I will argue, a call to be united in worship. United in worship. All Israel, we have this emphasis on all Israel mentioned 45 times. To be a united people. You know, that was the great grievance in the church at Corinth. They were so divided. So divided that even when they were taking the Lord's Supper improperly, Paul said, that's why some of you are sick and some of you have died. So it's a call to unity as God's people, to work together. And then when we do that, the Lord says he will hear from heaven and heal their land. This is a call for us to repent, and it's a call for faith in the Lord and to recommit ourselves to the Lord's body, which is the church, in the work for which he has called us to do. And it's a call, let us go up, friends. Let us go up together as a united people in our Lord Jesus to do the work. And times of refreshing will come. Times of refreshing will come. Uh, Peter picks up this theme, and I'm going to end on this, in the book of Acts. When Peter is giving his sermon at Pentecost, And he says uh, towards the end of his sermon in verse 19, Repent, therefore, and turn back that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Notice that theme of refreshment again. Let me read that again. Repent, therefore, and turn back that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may may come from the presence of the Lord and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. Even 2,000 years ago, we have this call to repent and return to the Lord at times of refreshing may come. That ultimate refreshing will come when our Lord Jesus returns 
and declares, Behold, I have made all things new. And we spend world without end with God and his people in the new creation. But God also gives temporal times of refreshing. And we've seen it throughout the history of the church, times of revival and times of renewal. And I'm sure most of us can also attest to that in our own lives, times where we have been wayward and times when the Lord has returned and refreshed our souls. And the key to doing that is returning to the Lord by repentance and faith and humility and being realigned with his central purpose for you, which is building the house of God together, using your gifts, being united for worship with the people of God. So I will leave you with that. And again, with that thought, how has God called you to, be, to participate in that united work to build up the house of God, to let us go up and to fulfill the Great Commission and to do that here in this place for this time. And as we do it together, may the Lord bring refreshment on our church and on us. Let's pray.